an enormous number of people, especially young journalists, are getting out of it because the pay is bad, the workload is insane, and the expectations are unrealistic. And so you're seeing more and more good potential tech journalists leave the field. In my 26 years as a PR professional, I've worked with hundreds of tech journalists. The good ones tend to stay in the field as a steady fixture on the mastheads of particular publications as a freelancer or both, like the one I'm introducing today. I'm pleased and proud to be speaking with one of those veteran journalists with a 45-year history covering every inch of the tech space in the private and public sectors at more top tech trades than I have time to list. His name is Wayne Rash. Based in D.C., Wayne still contributes to Forbes, U.S. News and World Report, CNN Underscored, and Red Ventures. Through the years, he created and ran the eWeek Knowledge Center, was a senior contributing editor and a senior analyst in the InfoWorld Test Center, running reviews out of Hawaii, if I recall, poor guy, and he was a news director for radio and television stations in Virginia. Wayne authored five books, including Politics on the Nets, published in 1997, where he examined the role of the internet in traditional and non-traditional politics. He majored in political science and physics in college, is a retired naval officer, loves golden retrievers, and is a ham radio operator. Wayne Rash, welcome, my friend. Hi, Davida. Thanks for inviting me to be on your podcast. I'm happy to be here. It's nice to touch base with you again after kind of a long time we haven't talked to each other. This is really good. One of the things in my reading your bio, and maybe I remember this, but we never talked about your career in the Navy. Let's just start off there. And if you have any fun stories, one or two fun stories among the million you probably have. Yeah, I spent uh, 20 years in the Navy. I retired as a supply corps officer and I um, did get to travel the world, mostly the Mediterranean area, and enjoyed it thoroughly. It's an interesting way to, to earn a living, and I really liked it. As I said, I was a supply corps officer, which meant that I had to do things like uh, buy food from the mafia in Sicily and buy gas in Israel. So you got to learn how to do a lot of things. The only advantage of either one of those was both the mafia and, and the government of Israel would take a U.S. Treasury check. Everybody else wanted cash. Did you do any writing in the Navy? Did, it, did your writing start there or after? Actually, my writing started before the Navy. I, I, was a reserve, I was a reservist for a while before I went back on active duty. And I was writing before that as during my time in the reserve many years ago. And I continued to do some writing while I was in the Navy, but there were some limits on it. I, for one thing, when you're out at sea without any communications to the rest of the world, you really can't submit a story. Um, even carrier pigeons don't keep up with the ships in the Navy. So you just have to not do it then. But when I was, when I had shore duty, which I did a few times, then I did the writing then. Mostly in those days, it was very, very early. It was back in the days when the big magazine was called Interface Age and the other one was called Byte. And I wrote for both of those. So it's an understatement to say you've been in tech journalism for a long time. You've seen the good, the bad, and maybe even the ugly of tech. Let's keep it on the high road and some of the, the top things in the last 10, 20 years. I mean, the technology keeps getting better every year. The computers that you can buy today are more powerful than anything any government had 20 years ago. The um, computer that you carry in your pocket and call a cell phone is more powerful. It's one of those things, if you read the various projections of the future that a number of science fiction authors, such as Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov have published over the years. 
they far exceed what even some of the wildest imaginations were. And we're doing things in the digital world that nobody ever really imagined would happen. You know, for example, social media is something that before it started showing up, nobody ever really dreamed it would exist. Who would have imagined Twitter and Facebook? And who would have imagined that something like Twitter can change the course of politics in a country or the fate of a country itself? You know, it's one of these things where we never foresaw that, and yet there it is. There were communities. We touched upon some of these things, but we didn't define them the same way. So like anything else, I guess it was an evolution because you can't go from A to Z without all the letters in between. I was in the computer-based training industry at one point, and there was some hints of this sort of thing, but not in its current form. There are some pre- certainly some precursors. For example, some of the groups on CompuServe, some of the online services, Delphi and Bix and a couple of the others, had some aspects of what we're seeing now. The closest was actually Byte Magazine's service called Bix that uh, that kind of foreshadowed what you're seeing on social media. But it uh, it wasn't really the same thing. It certainly had nowhere near the reach. And what's important about social media now is how global its reach is. So now when you say something and somebody's following you, uh, like if I were to go on Twitter and say to the world how awesome Davida Dinnerman is, well, then maybe dozens of people would see it and then spread it around the world. It's ephemeral, too. You think it's ephemeral until somebody until you decide to run for political office and somebody goes back and downloads all of your tweets for the last however long it's been. Then you find out it's not ephemeral at all. There are a lot of tech you've seen. How about, are there any that over the years you you thought were going to really make it big and just flopped? Yeah, you know, some of the personal devices, like starting out with the Apple Newton and the Palm Pilot, were really big for a while. But the whole thing with the handwriting recognition turned out to not work very well. And it wasn't got, it didn't get better very quick. So the Palm Pilot kind of morphed into a cell phone. And while you can take your your iPhone or your Palm-based device, if they still exist, I don't think they even still exist anymore, and they can do some handwriting, it, it turned out not to be the way that things worked, which in a way was good because it turned out to be fairly labor-intensive and not very efficient as a way to input to a computer. Voice recognition worked out much better. And also because of the fact that it just really had its, its problems. I keep looking back to the Doonesbury cartoon where the uh, thing came up with egg freckles. That unfortunately kind of defined how the handwriting recognition was working. Flipping over now to the journalism side, what do you like about the current face of tech journalism? I know it's changed a ton since you started, but what do you like that has stayed over the years? Tech journalism is good in one sense and that it's still there. And that was never a sure thing. The fact that there's still journalism involving technology. It's so easy and would seem to for a while so likely for it to simply have gone into a world of republishing press releases. Not to denigrate press releases because I certainly use them and you certainly write them, but there's got to be something in between where there's an evaluation of what's important and what's not. And journalism is, is a way to do that. One advantage is that to some extent, regular honest to goodness newspaper and network type journalism has come over into the tech world so that you get the general rigor of good journalism, at least to some extent, in the technology press. Unfortunately, there's still an awful lot of in the technology press that is more like boosterism than it is like journalism. I think it's getting less and less. Companies have to become content engines. And I think I have seen that 
publications, reporters, journalists have gotten tougher on companies not promoting their stuff. Now there's paid versus earn, and I'm not going to go there, but what do you see as things that could be improved now in journalism? I think the real problem is, is the, the real issue in technology journalism is the fact that companies are cutting back on budgets to the point that technology journalism is, I think, more in danger than it once was. You know, some of us who are in a position that we are, are still able to keep on in tech journalism. An enormous number of people, especially young journalists, are getting out of it because the pay is bad, the workload is insane, and the expectations are unrealistic. And so you're seeing more and more good potential tech journalists leave the field. And partly that's because of too much focus on the minuscule differences in profit at the end of the quarter than it is on anything else. And too many media companies have moved away from good content into simply just content. There's so many layers now of journalism, not just the e-weeks and the info worlds and network worlds, et cetera, but there are these substacks and then communities that are very influential for some companies. And they're, they're finding that their target audiences, are that's where they're getting their information. And it's hard to find them. Yeah, it is. And it's also, it's becoming so scattered. I would like to say diversified. That's not really the right way, word. It's becoming so, sta- so scattered that for people who consume this journalism, it's very, getting very difficult to find good, reliable information. Yeah, there's, te- there's all these sub stacks, Nobody knows how many and nobody knows where to find them. Nobody knows which ones are reliable and which ones aren't. And the result is, is that you end up with uh, lots and lots of content, but it doesn't have any way to evaluate the quality of it. So the result is that you end up with you know, garbage. What about companies becoming their own content generators and then putting SEO on their sites? Would you say that their own websites are competing now for that same space? Yes, they are. And I think it's, um, I understand why they're doing it because of the pre, the problems I mentioned with technology journalism recently, a few, a few minutes ago, they're having trouble getting the kind of coverage they want. And the result is, is they're, they're generating their own content. And I have to say, it depends on who's doing the generating. Uh, some of these companies are actually very careful about making sure they they don't engage in self-promotion. They actually write about issues that affect their part of the industry and do it fairly balanced. But unfortunately, when you're paying for this kind of content, it's a very, very strong temptation to make sure that whatever it is that you do comes out on top, whatever the content may be. So if there's any evaluation going on, they, they want to make sure their their product or their service ends up being the one that is the one that's on the top of the list. This doesn't always happen. But when people are consuming this content, it's really important that they know who is providing it and how it's being provided and be alert to the fact that there could be some influence taking place in what the content is. Sometimes when you read these things, it's really obvious because it's all about them. But sometimes it's very subtle. And, you know, it's um, it looks like content that's, very, very balanced, but it's subtle, it's subtly swayed in their favor. So when you're consuming it, you've got to watch for that. And as I said, sometimes it's, it comes out and the stuff's pretty good. And sometimes it comes out and the stuff's not pretty good. And it's really hard to tell in advance which it's going to be. And sometimes it can be the same company. Sometimes they have good and sometimes they don't. What would you advise people who want to go into journalism? Do you think they should go right into media or should they find a company who needs writers? 
if you're talking journalism, you're not going to find it at a company who needs writers. You're going to find it at a news outlet. And if you want to be a writer, that's different. You probably make more money working for a company. And I'll say right now that especially as a freelancer, it's really hard to even make a living wage as a freelancer. It can be done because I can do it, but it's hard to do. An awful lot of new writers who come in and want to be journalists and want to do the Woodward and Bernstein saving the world thing find out that it's extremely difficult to, to do that. First of all, because there are, there are fewer and fewer companies hiring journalists. The world of journalism has been shrinking and it's shrinking pretty fast right now. And secondly, the budgets allocated to journalism, even by the media companies, is, are shrinking. So as a result, you can come to work for one and you'll be lucky to make minimum wage. And you can't, do, you can't be a, a reporter and live on minimum wage. It just isn't possible. Um, and it's not because, personally, because minimum wage is so bad and Congress won't change it. And secondly, because every reporter ends up having to spend their own money on some things. And the, re- the result is that they, the minimum wage, they just wouldn't be able to. So the re- what you're finding is that it's, there are fewer and fewer journalists who are leaving because of resources. And the whole field is, is and especially in tech journalism, is shrinking. It's also shrinking in not tech journalism, but not quite so quickly. You've worked with PR people for a very long time, and I'm sure you get plenty of emails a day. I get about a thousand emails a day. That is a lot. How can a PR person get through to you best? What's the best way to get Wayne Rash's attention? The best way to get my attention or any other journalist's attention is to be aware of what they're covering before you send them the press release. They should all follow the lead of Davida Dinnerman. What you do is you you say, okay, who covers this particular topic? Go look for the articles on that particular topic. See who the people are who are writing it. Look at several of them and see if you see the same name over and over again. If you do, then that's probably the person you should pitch. If you see one person, he writes a, you know, he see, he writes a story on a particular piece of product one time and you'll never see it again, it's not much point in pitching them because they're probably not, they probably may not even be working there. And if they are, they're probably not doing that on a regular basis. It's not much point in pitching them. The other thing they have to do is they have to look at what level of journalist they need to pitch. Because there are people who um, have the ability to pick and choose their assignments. There are people who are actually editors who do the assigning. And then there are people who are your basic uh, reporters who may or may not have any any real capability of, of deciding what to report, but rather simply go with whatever I've told. Now, even, even, even junior reporters can have some influence. So if they see a product or an item or a story that looks really compelling, they can usually pitch their editor on it. But that's not the area where you're going to get your most bang for your buck. So subject lines have to be creative, pithy. Actually, the subject line has to say what it's about. It doesn't have to be pithy. It just has to say what it's about. And the first paragraph or two has got to do the who, what, where, when, and why we talk about in the news business. Funny stories, clever angles, all that stuff are just wasted time. If, if I get it, if I look at a an email that contains something people want me to write about, and it's some kind of a funny story about your dog. I may like your dog, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to go any further before I hit the delete key. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that people make is they think I'm going to be engaged by the cleverness of your story. 
I'm never even going to see the cleverness of the story. If I can't figure out in the first line or two what it's about, I don't have time to sit there and read further into the press release. Uh, I just hit the delete key. I just can't, I can't afford, when you get a thousand emails a day that are trying to get you to cover something, you only have a few a few seconds a piece to go through them. You have to remember my day is, requires me to also write things, and I can't spend all day on email. So I just go through and hit delete, 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 unless there's something that sticks out. So I know there are things that get lost. I can only do what I can do. And if somebody can't come up with a way to have a subject line that tells me what the, what the article, what the item is about, and then a, a, a few words right after that to tell me actually what they're saying, then I'm not going to take the time to read any deeper into it. I just can't. I don't have that sort of time. Is there a time of day you like to dedicate to writing versus maybe responding to email or finding pitch ideas? I look at emails first thing in the morning because that's when everything shows up, at least stuff on the East Coast shows up then. And stuff on the West Coast frequently was sent late enough in the day that I didn't see it before I quit for the day. So I look at emails first thing in the morning, generally around lunchtime. I start working on the story and then I start writing sometime in the mid-afternoon. Everyone's doing predictions. Anything that you're going, huh, I think I'll, we'll be seeing more of this in 2023 and beyond. You're going to be seeing a lot more cloud in consumer tech. You already see a lot of it. Most people don't realize that's what they're doing. But you're going to see more and more cloud in consumer tech. It's already getting pretty close to ubiquitous. I mean, pretty much everything you do with Apple, for example, is really cloud, even if it doesn't look like it. Nowadays, you have songs on your iPhone. A lot of them aren't actually on your iPhone anymore. They're actually somewhere in the cloud. And you, now you're backing up to your to your Apple account, but that's in the cloud too. Most of the stuff now is actually pretty obvious that it's in the cloud, and there's more and more of it. And you're going to see more and more entertainment in the cloud. Um you know, when you're looking at what's on TV and you go to what's on your cable, uh, on, on your, you know, look at the various things that you could get from your alternate channels on cable. A lot of that stuff is already in the cloud. And a lot more of it's going to be in the cloud pretty, pretty soon. You, know, you can save the, save a program to you, to your, to the hard disk on your entertainment device. But, uh, most of the time, if you watch it in real time, it's coming from the cloud, unless it's a direct broadcast. And I think that in B2B tech, I think we're going to start seeing marginally, unfortunately, more attention to security. One of the sad parts about B2B tech is security has been an afterthought for a long time. And so this is why you end up with so many stupid little breaches, some of which are self-inflicted. I've been talking to companies now that are actually doing the work of making security be the first thing that happens rather than the rather than the afterthought. I think you're going to see more of that. I think that's going to be more important because the penalty for being for having a breach if you're no matter what level of company you are has gotten more and more and more significant. I mean nowadays not only can you lose your company, you can go to jail. People who have data are starting to realize that and they're starting to take the protection of this data seriously. Consumers are also going to find out that it's marginally less convenient to do some types of e-commerce because of the fact that they have to be, they have to go through steps for security purposes. And that's going to be slightly annoying until they get used to it, but uh, it's really for their own protection. They'd be a lot more annoyed if somebody got into their uh, credit card account and took all their money. People don't like two-factor and multi-factor authentication. It's a hurdle, but people have to be retrained. Yeah, and it's not that hard. I mean, nowadays you're already getting multi-factor authentication on a lot of on a lot of public services. I have multi-factor authentication turned on where possible. 
but Google is now using multi-factor. Not necessarily when you're just looking for a search, but for other things. Facebook does multi-factor authentication now. Again, not for everything, but you can have it turned on so that somebody can't really post as you. Even some of the, a lot of, a lot of the consumer sites now demand that they send a, a message to your phone that you type into a box, which is not the world's most secure method of multi-factor authentication. And it's can be easily, if you know what you're doing, circumvented, but it's better than nothing by a long shot. I agree with you on the security, but I also feel like we've been talking about this for decades. It's a little like interoperability in healthcare. People have talked about it, maybe just tried to get ahead of it. Security by design and all that. But all of these articles written about building security in from the get-go, I guess it just hasn't gone through yet to some companies. Well, some companies are still not doing it. And some developers really don't like doing it. Part of the problem is, is that it's very difficult for a company that's doing development to mandate that kind of thing to their developers because they're afraid that some of their developers are going to quit because it's extra work. Unfortunately, it's one of those things. I mean, like everything else, there was developers who didn't want to use graphical user interfaces. There are developers who didn't want to do other types of activities that ended up having to be done. There are developers who don't want to have to do all this extra stuff. In some cases, because they don't want to have to learn how to do this extra stuff. You know, they're used to doing it their way. They do a bang-up job in Python or something. But they don't want to have to learn how to also add security to what they're doing because they don't want to learn. It's just inertia. They don't want to do it. And it's companies are afraid those guys, those people will leave. You know, having once run a development shop in the Navy, actually a DLA, um, I know they won't leave. They still want to have a paycheck. And if you tell them this is the way it's going to be and you have to start it this way, and we're paying you to do this, and here's how to do it, I mean, there will be a few people who are just, you know, too hard-headed. But most of the time, that's not a problem. They will, they will, just, they will learn and they will do it as long as they feel like they're getting paid for it. Well, if they see the benefit to themselves, their future, the company, I could imagine they would want to jump on board. Because if it is pervasive among companies, it's not like they can jump to another one. They're going to get the same directive. Well, maybe. I mean, there's a lot of companies that for which the whole idea of security is still an afterthought. And that's why you see so many stupid things happening. But they're becoming fewer and fewer in and in a few years, they'll be much fewer because they're starting to suffer the consequences. What about for the journalism world? Advice or predictions for the coming year? It's going to get worse. And that's easy to look, see. It's already getting worse. There will be fewer senior journalists. The junior entry-level journalists will not be so encouraged to come in. They will be paid less. And uh, journalism in technology business is going to slowly get worse. It's not a very good outlook, but I can't see anything that's going to come in and make that change at all. Nothing positive to end it? No, not for that one. You know, it's one of these things where there was a time when we would see new magazines, we would see people encouraging real journalism, we would see positive benefits for journalists who actually did good stories and things. But now, unless you work for one of a few big newspapers where they still encourage this, it's not happening. I mean, now the only reason we're seeing as much as we're seeing is because Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post and is insisting on journalism. And because the people on the New York Times are doing the same thing. But so many old great newspapers are only a shell of them for themselves. And if you look at them, you pick them up instead of being a broadsheet newspaper, they're now becoming a tabloid, which automatically cuts the content down by 50% or more, become more of a vehicle for advertising than it was in the first place, instead of a vehicle for news that has advertising. So the outlook in technology journalism is not very positive. I wish I could say otherwise. 
I'm glad I'm reaching the age where I can retire and not have to think about it anymore. Do you miss uh, reviews? Yes and no. I mean, doing a review of the kind we used to do with the day with the big magazines is a lot of work. And it's more than just writing type work. Before I moved here, I had an entire area of my office for shipping and receiving because I had large items coming in and large items going out. The FedEx driver knew my dog's name. The sheer logistics of doing big reviews is fairly significant. And for that reason, the magazines would, would actually pay a lot of money to do them because they had to, it cost money for this sort of thing to happen. They had to pay for the freight. They had to pay for you know, all the postage. Uh, they had to make sure that the writer was getting enough to make it worth his while to do all this materials handling and shipping and receiving and things. And also to take the risk. I mean, every time you write a review, there's a risk level involved. You get somebody who is so upset by what you said that they're going to sue you, despite the fact that it's true. I mean, fortunately, saying the truth is the ultimate defense. There's nothing they can do that will get them a win. Nevertheless, it's it's a risk. Now, I've, I haven't been sued. I've been threatened. I've had companies call my editor and demand I be fired. I've had a couple of times people threaten me personally. And I've had companies come and offer me very interesting incentives if I would make sure the review is slanted in a particular way. And some of those incentives are, well, I can't even go into them on the on a on a publicly consumed webcast broadcast, but you know they're they they try really hard. That was a bear. I remember preparing a company with briefing notes, and they'd have to have this whole document for the reviewer. Uh, and if he can't couldn't ship the technology, they'd do it in house or at a customer site, and then there was chance that the reviewer could call anyone in the company. It was a big deal. Risk and reward, as you mentioned. Appreciate your time, Wayne. Thank you for all of your journalistic talent throughout the years, and it's going to continue. So we're very lucky about that. And I wish you all the best in the holiday season and the new year. Thank you very much. And I wish you the best for the holiday season, too. You've been listening to veteran tech journalist Wayne Rash in a conversation with Look Left's Davida Dinnerman. For more information on Wayne, please visit www.waynerash.com. And of course, you can find Wayne on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. If you haven't already, we invite you to subscribe to the Look Left at Marketing podcast series. We're on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Thanks again for joining us on this edition of the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Till next time, be well.